uh, the weekend and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. I went the opposite and it was like therapy. It was actually like (laughs) therapy because there were so many people responding and commenting and engaging saying, oh my God, I'm not alone. I'm like that too. So that for me was like, well, I don't feel so alone now. The problem with trauma is that it's like a carpet. It lifts up the other trauma. So when the girl fell on the ground Mm -hmm. and I heard the bang, that bang reminded me of when I was knocked down and I could hear the bang of my head on the ground. But I think it's the big issue. I mean, like, employment is not a problem. There's a huge cultural life in the city. It's just an amazing place. But you can't afford to live in it. And we'll start with Callan's Kicks, where cabinet reshuffles are in the air. Yahoo! Oh, well done, Minister McGrath. Thank you, Master. You just have my Darth Vader bobblehead figure to polish now, and then you can start putting some structure on my World Cup sticker collection. The Darth Vader is easiest to do because he's already so smooth and shiny. Yeah, that's what people used to say about the tech companies here. And I suppose that soon it'll be my job to make them shine again as well. Now, now, you can leave the tech giants to me. But when I'm the Minister for Finance... The more comfortable with me I understand how they tick and how they talk what you don't understand Michael is that the metaverse is all about alternative realities for example when I lose my job in one reality for the reshuffle in an alternative reality I get to keep my job but I'll be the Minister for Finance and will be attending the meetings. You can explain to I them. won't be able to talk to you in the meeting because I don't want to be accused of an ickle conflict of interest in my role as Lord of the Tax in Europe. Sozzy. Of course, I'll need to brief you on your new role in public expenditure and reform. Ha! <laughs> the reform part is hilarious. I won't be doing that. Well, at least I'll be the one standing up first on budget day, so... Well, we'll see about that. We'll have to figure something out, Michael. What? Maybe you get to sit on my... Oh, all all right. Yes, master. Thank you very much. From Callan's Kicks. And Mammy Banter's social media star, Serena Terry, was Ray Darcy's guest in the afternoon. Now, Derry woman Serena Terry, uh, Terry Derry, took to the internet by storm uh, during lockdown with her down-to-earth, unfiltered take on family life, gaming more than... 2 million followers and 35 million views across social media platforms with her Mammy Banter skits. Her first book, Mammy Banter, The Secret Life of an Uncool Mum, was a Sunday Times bestseller and now she's back with a new book, The Shite Before Christmas, which follows Tara and the rest of the Gallagher family as they prepare to deal with the festive season and Serena joins me in studio. Hello, Serena. Hello, you said shite. You said shite. No, you said shite. Uh, you, no, you, fir- you said it first. <laughs> no, you, you, I'm, you. I'm not complaining. Nobody in the North lets me say it. They're like... Uh, it rhymes with white before oh, yes. Christmas. But it's the other one that's offensive, I think. Which one? Without the E. Don't say it. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes, I think that's more right, offensive. Okay. I okay. think you're allowed to say... Yeah, I, I've said it in the past, you know, when you're out... I don't know if you have a dog. Do you have a dog? No. No. We see, if you have a dog and they do a poo... Yeah. And then you have to pick it up in a bag. Aye. And then if there's no bin, you're walking around with a right. bag of shite. Like that's, and that's not nice. That's, that's not nice. nice. Okay. No, that's Congratulations not nice. on the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and you've uh, a six-year-old and a thirteen-year-old, Alfie do. and Ava. And and what, what do they think of the name of the book? Oh, Alfie loves it. Does he? He yeah. absolutely loves it because he can say it and he's allowed to say it. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, Ava's a teenager, so she's just repulsed by anything I do right now. But sure, <laughs> what can we do? As is Jemmy in the book. Yes. 
Now, we'll, we'll talk about the book in a moment, but this has been a mad three years for you, Serena. Mad. Mad. Unbelievable. Like, so 2019 was a very tough year for you and your family. Yeah. Uh, we lost, well, I lost two of my brothers. Uh, they were twins, Daniel and Patrick, in 2019, uh, eight weeks apart. Unfortunately, um, Patrick died of liver cancer and eight weeks later, his twin Daniel died due to alcohol and mental health issues. So when the pandemic had it, kind of had at that time, they call it the peak of grief. It's like the six months time after a death. Um, so that was not fun. No. No, it was not fun. I, I, and like I imagine it's like I've been hit by a bus um, uh and then, as you say, lockdown happened. Uh, so you're not allowed to grieve in the normal way. Yeah, you can't run away from it. No. Because that's what I would be used to doing. I think we all do that. We, we keep ourselves busy to yes. kind of run away from any kind of low feelings or mood. And especially grief, you keep busy. And not being able to do that was so, so hard. So hard for me personally. Um I already was suffering with anxiety. I'm on medication for anxiety. I talk about it quite a lot over social media. I'm trying to just kind of normalise it and weave it in there. It's in the book. Yeah. Tara has anxiety. Um, so that coupled with grief and then lockdown, it left me a shadow of myself. Now, at the time, I was working 60, 70 hours a week. As what? Uh, Chief Operations Officer for a software company. Right. So my career's completely... <laughs> Different, yeah. Completely changed... Um, but one thing I would say is grief allowed me to prioritise what's important and my happiness definitely was prioritised because when I started making TikTok videos, I felt as if I'd found a bit of my identity again. But why did you Why did you start making TikTok videos? It was videos? just out of silliness. Everybody was doing it the same way everybody was having a bottle of wine every night because there was no school run yeah. the next day. It was for about a crack. I had deleted all my social media. I was fed up of seeing people on Instagram making banana bread and doing reward charts for their kids. I was like, my kids are going back to school, stupider. Why are all these people talking about how good they're doing at homeschooling and then renting gym equipment and out the back? I had put on about two stone in the first two weeks. I couldn't cope. And then everything that I was seeing was just fueling any insecurities that I had and already being at that low point. Yes. Of grief, I was just like, I am in control of this because that's the best advice I've ever got around anxiety or mental health. Figure out what you're in control of. Um, and the one big thing for me, any kind of triggers on my anxiety or how good a parent I was or how I was providing for my kids or how I was doing as an employee or a wife or a friend, it was social media. So I deleted it. But then I was really, really bored. Even though I was working six days a week yeah. and I had two kids, I was like, am I going to have to start talking to my husband at night time? Hi, Mark. <laughs> Hi, Mark. So why TikTok? TikTok? Ava was on it. Right. And uh, she had showed me so many videos before and they were funny, but I just assumed that they were just flashing the pan. The, the rest of the app was made up of these silly teenagers dancing. I thought that was the premise of it mm. until I downloaded it one night. And and you then started channeling your, your sort of dysfunctional motherhood in a way, not not but but you this this really? character, this alter ego. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't so much dysfunctional. Dysfunctional. It was the opposite of what I was seeing on social media at the time, which the curated was sort of perfect airbrushed yeah. kind of perception of what we think we need to portray ourselves as on social media. I went the opposite, and it was like therapy. It was actually like <laughs> therapy because there were so many people 
responding and commenting and engaging, saying, oh, my God, I'm not alone. Yeah. I'm like that, too. So that for me was like, well, I don't feel so alone now. And I had been scrolling for hours the first night I downloaded it. And it was people our age who were losing their shite. I can say it because it's not offensive. It's the only one. Um, That's in my opinion. I don't think. <laughs> you'll never be back. Yes. Um, me or you? <laughs> me. Both <of> us. <laughs> who were just losing it, but they were being honest about it. Yeah. And they were laughing about it. And they were kind of poking fun at themselves. And it was very much a time of if we don't laugh, we'll cry. And that is how it started. And I kept that as the ethos. And it has seemed to resonate with so many people, which feels like a superpower. Yeah. Serena Terry on The Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Gaelic games in Uganda and learning the sport through TikTok. PE teacher Moses Amineri was telling Claire about forming his Uganda GAA. Moses, first to you, how did you hear about hurling and Gaelic football in the first place? Because you have no connection with Ireland, have you? No, I don't actually have any connection with Ireland. I came to hear about hurling uh, with my friend who's called Robert Bakaze. Uh, we found hurling on, on YouTube and TikTok. So um, we were very, very interested in, in, in watching those, those games. So what we did was we kept on watching several videos on YouTube and, and TikTok. Um, that's how we came up with the whole idea of starting up hurling here in Uganda. So what was it so about those videos, Moses, uh, that, that attracted you? What did you like about what you saw? One was that the game was very, very unique. It was not anywhere in, in, in Africa, per se, because we had never watched it anywhere. So what was interesting was that it was very, very fast. And also the, the kind of equipment used was very, very new to us. We, we don't have games here whereby every player is having the hall. And also the way of passing the ball from one person to another was also very, very interesting. And, and so Moses, how, how did you figure out the rules and how to coach the games? Well, with the rules in the beginning, we were only reading from a, a few rules from, from online, of course, from, from Google. And then after some time, we got in touch with the GA back in Ireland. Uh, so we did attend a few courses online and also we received uh, some manuals which we printed out and then we were able to read. And, and also with time, we got some, some rules from, from YouTube by watching a few clips online. So yeah, that's okay. how we can know the rules. It's so fascinating. And John, this is where you come in because Moses and, and his team got in touch with the GAA. The GAA got in touch with the Irish ambassador and then you were contacted. So tell me what you saw the first time that you saw the students training. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, so the ambassador called and contacted the Irish Society and then I went out for the Irish Society and he went out to see them train. And, and honestly, we were blown away. We were expecting, like anyone else, oh, these guys are just going to be running around. Uh, mainly it was football that day. And, but the skills, there were some lovely little footballers. Uh, the biggest thing we noticed was they were solo and they were great, was the hand passing. They were, they were throwing it, which was, uh, you could see why they were throwing it because it was, they were watching it from YouTube and TikTok and it looked so fast that they thought that's the way they did it. But it was, honestly, it was amazing the way they had it picked up and we didn't know what to expect um, when we went out. Um, and yeah, that was it. Yeah, it, was, it was exceptional. It's a great day out. People, a few hours now have gone out and they love it. Everyone says it's a great day out. And, and the hurling then, I mean, they didn't have access to hurls at that point. So what were they using? Ah, that was amazing entirely. They, 
they gave that a proper lash. They were they basically they seen her and then they googled hurls, taken images, and they started making their own hurls from mahogany and movable two local hardwoods here. Uh, and then the GA got in contact. GA sent down the internet. GA International Games Association. They were great. They sent down some hurls for them, and then from there they were able to use some of those, the few hurls they had, and their own make their own uh, hurls they made as well. And then Cooltech just sent 100 hurls, which we'll get to them on Sunday, actually. Right, and we'll talk and about that yeah, in, that in a minute. Now. But Moses, to come back to you on the on the hurlies. I mean, using mahogany and heavy wood hurls, that must have been very difficult. And your players must have noticed a huge difference when they got the real thing. Yeah, um, first we were using quite a soft wood, but of course the slaughters were quite hard and it was getting broken on very many occasions. So what we did was we had to find out quite uh, a kind of wood that's quite hard and sustainable, and that's why we had to choose uh, the mufule. And then afterwards, we realized that uh, when, when the ambassador came to this part with, with John Walsh, then we had now the chance of seeing the real hull. Well, the difference was there that the, 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 the weight ours was quite heavy, and of course the shape was not like the real shape, but very close to the real shape, so yeah. There was a difference, and of course, we were happy finally to see a real hull from what we are using. And what equipment do you have now, Moses, and what more do you need? Uh, right about now, we need um, helmets because uh, the gear only gave us in helmets, and, and and also uh, we need to have some boots for the children. The children who, who are playing hurling only use uh, the, the sandals, some, some of them don't have the shoes, so we think if we can get the boots, Moses Amaniri and John Walsh from the Uganda Irish Society from today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty's guest was Luke McManus, an award-winning film and documentary maker. And he was talking about his new film, it's called North Circular, and why he chose to shoot in black and white. There's a million reasons. Uh, yeah. One was I wanted it to feel like a memory maybe or I wanted to make a film about the past but set it in the present and I wanted it to be resonant in the past. And I'd done a little music video with Lancome, the folk band, mm. that was in that style. And I just, people loved it and I loved it and I kept thinking I want to go back to that style for a project and do it black and white. And, and also 4-3, which is the kind of square, yeah. boxy look, which is like a redolent of like films from the 60s and the 50s and that. And then... Hey, this wait film a second. Sc- Scorsese was 80 yesterday. Wow. And, and uh, Ra- Raging Bull. For sure. You know, it's... It, it, Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, think of what that film evokes in you. There's something very powerful about yeah. the simplicity of black and white. And... And also, I think of the general, you know, when John Borman made that decision to make the general in black and white, yeah. that was really shocking, you know, at the time. But it created a timelessness yeah. that I think is really valuable. Also, gangsters. Right. You know, black and white, Jimmy <laughs> Cagney. Of Humphrey Bogart, you know, like the classic tough Noir, guy, the yeah. archetypal. But there's also other practical reasons as well. Like when you're shooting on the street, like estate agent signs and spar and centre, they're all yellow and red and screaming for your attention, you yeah. know. But when you're black and white, it kind of democratises and they all sink into the background a bit and you know everyone's got the same value in black and white I like that I like that a lot so your your film is called North Circular there are many people listening who don't know what that means many people who sure. haven't put their foot on this beautiful part of uh, Dublin so let's 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 bring them there well you know the North Circular Road runs through Dublin uh, it sort of d- defines the north inner city as a boundary almost I think uh, Eamon McAmosh said Maid begins on the other side of the yeah. North Circular you know <laughs> so it's the inner inner sanctum if you like and it starts at the Phoenix 
Phoenix Park and it runs to the Docklands. But I actually would, if you don't mind, disagree with you about people yeah. not being there because I've taken a generous definition of the North Circular to include the Phoenix Park and the Docklands and Sheriff Street and around there. So if you've been to Dublin Zoo, if you've been to Croke Park, mm. you know, if you've been to the banks of the River Liffey down by the East Link or you've been to the O2 or the Three Arenas, it's called now, yeah. you've been in this place. And I'd say... If you'd grabbed 10 Irish people off the street, nine out of 10 of them would have been fair, somewhere fair like point, this. You except know? that entirely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So they've been there, but they don't know it. They've kind of hurried through it on the way yes, to somewhere else. Yeah. And it's been a slightly, maybe at times, intimidating and alien environment for a lot of them. You know, it's yeah. very urban. It's an extremely, it's probably the most urban place in the whole country. Um, so visitors, temporary visitors to there would probably struggle to get a sense of what it is. So that was the idea was, can I find universal things in this very local area, the street that I live off. Which you, which you have achieved um, in this film. So t- take us there. What, what part of it did you really want to show off or analyse or investigate most? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually. I think, you know, I went into... Documentaries are great because you begin with a plan and then you're really hoping a better plan emerges, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like you're really going on a journey. Uh, yourself as a filmmaker. But that's what the film is as well as a journey. So I was kind of a bit of a void to discovery for me too. I didn't have a massive agenda. I knew I wanted music in the film. I knew I wanted it to have certain connections to the past, but I kind of just wanted to go on a trip uh, down this road and, and see what I found. And the kind of aesthetic of it is almost like, you know when you're walking down a street and you hear a snatch of a conversation going past you mm. and you can kind of imagine those people's lives and then the next person comes along. So that's what the film's like. It doesn't, yes. they're not all connected, obviously, but it's just that almost like an eavesdropping thing, you know? Yeah. And they bring you into the doors of the house you're investigating, to use an analogy, where you see one person, you go, okay, so what's their story? Let's go in. Yeah, that, that was a huge thing in the film was getting past the threshold, yes. you know, because especially during the time I was making it, which was COVID, where you couldn't go to other people's houses. But the North Circular has all these entities along at the barracks, you know, of Black Horse Avenue, the old mental asylum of Grange Gorman. You've got Daly Mount Park, you've got Croke Park, you've got Magdalen Laundries, you've got Mountjoy Prison. Like, there's this extraordinary panoply of institutions that have all these resonances. So part of the idea of the film was to peek behind the curtain. And Ryan asked Luke about the role of music in the documentary and particularly the singer and musician Gemma Dunleavy. I liked what you did with, you know, one of the rising artists who I have great appreciation of and admiration for is Gemma Dunleavy. Oh, amazing. I love, she, what I love about her is authenticity. She sings, she doesn't put on an American accent. She no, try to be something not. else. She just does her, does her thing. Uh, so I'm a fan and I'm delighted to see her featuring in this because, well, why don't you tell us why and how? Because this is an intergenerational storytelling, singing. She come, she encapsulates your program. No, very much so. Like, yeah, film. she she was in the project since the start, pretty much the proposal. I was, the band Lancome who, two members of her in the film were mm. in the proposal but Je- I'd seen on Twitter that Gemma wanted to make a documentary uh, she was talking about making a documentary about her own community and her music is kind of documentary music it is like yeah, you know yeah. that's her style and actually most traditional Irish music and ballads is also that style of narrative mm. storytelling I mean we are the, the great storytelling nation and our music is a storytelling well, type you're, of music you're you know? so right as you're saying that it, it strikes me that like the likes of Gemma Dunleavy are 2022's Luke Kelly's, you know, but they're just in a different style of music. 100%. And fundamentally connected back to it. I mean, she has a harpist, she has a fiddle player, but it's very much part of a texture that's like garage influenced and R&B and all the hip hop and all that other stuff. Yeah. But 
Gemma's just one of these people who operates on a million levels, you know, like she's incredible, smart, charismatic, articulate, all the good things you want in a person and just has a little bit of poetry to her. Like she's able to pull a phrase out of the air kind of and and just land it. And then I was talking to Terry Fagan, who's the sort of king of the archives of that part of town, Buckingham Street and the old Monto mm, and mm. Seville Place and Portland Row. And he was like, oh yeah, Gemma's great grandmother was the Granny Dunleavy. Now tell me about the Granny Dunleavy. This yeah. is brilliant. It's amazing because when I found that out, I was so pleased because as I was making the film, I was kind of realising these characters I'm meeting, they represent the past. Yeah. They're contemporary characters. There's no archive footage. There's no old photos. It's all about now. But they all are haunted by these ghosts of the past. And carrying the flame through oral history or musical right. history. Right, yeah. 100%. Like, yeah, yeah, that thing of tradition being yes. precious. Yeah. and But reinventing it, not a stasis, not a museum dusty cabinet, like a living yeah. thing that's very kind of contemporary and fashionable and cool, like, you know. But um, yeah, so Terry was saying that, telling me that Gemma's great-grandmother was a midwife in the old Monto red light district, uh, which was around the corner from where Gemma still lives. So she had, and that, that character was a hugely important sort of proto-feminist you know, in that community because when a sex worker in those days would get pregnant, they'd be very badly treated by the brothel keepers. There wouldn't be any use to them. They'd throw them out and then the Granny Dunleavy would be the person who'd take them in, make sure right. the baby got delivered, offered them somewhere to go, some succour, some support. Mm. And that really interested me because the, the last chapter of the film, the film's kind of chapters as you mm. get down the road, is about women and about the way we, where we're at now, basically, in terms of our society, of kind of overcoming a lot of the repression that's been in Ireland, you know. So to have her tied back into that, let's take a clip family, of that. Let's yeah, do yeah, it. Let's do it. Okay. You hear stories growing up. The Granny Dunleavy, as everyone called her, she grew up in the Monto. They lived in the tenement housing, you know, very poor. Like didn't grow up with an awful lot, with no money really. So the Monto was the red light district, the biggest red light district in the world. The story goes that she used to protect the sex workers there and she would take them in if they were pregnant and look after them, deliver the babies, stand up to the pimps. Yeah, that's uh, just a, a small clip of uh, the singer Gemma Dun- Dunleavy in, uh, who took part in Luke McManus's film uh, North Circular, which we're talking about this morning. A documentary musical. Yeah. I haven't heard that as an expression before. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a notion I'm after taking, but... Uh, <laughs> OK, yeah, I, I like that because I, when I saw the proliferation of music throughout the... Pro, like, it right. was, there's a lot of it. There's a huge amount. And it's very Irish. It's very distinct, clearly, to the area, largely speaking. And, you know, it suddenly I went, what, what is this? You know, this is... Well, the idea, the conceit was, as I was saying, Irish ballad form being very narrative and very good at storytelling and often about the past... So people were saying, oh, you're making a music documentary. And I was like, no, I'm not. Because mm. it's not about, the documentary isn't about the music. The, the music tells the stories of the documentary. Mm. So you have your section about prison where you're talking to an ex-prisoner, Willa White, who's now a wonderful comedian and actor. Yeah. But then you have John Francis Flynn singing a Ewan McCall ballad about prison life in the cobblestone to accompany that. Mm. So the idea being that, you know, my section about the army and about empire, Ian Lynch from Lancome sings an old, old song about, called The Banks of the River Nile about a guy going away to war in in, in Egypt in the 19th yeah. century. So you have this idea that these songs tell the story in the same way they do in musicals, mm. you know. Mm. So yeah, yeah. now it's not for any jazz hands, you know yeah. what I mean? 
And Luke spoke about some of the performances from the Cobblestone Pub in Smithfield. Those performances are from a night called uh, The Night Before Larry Got Stretched, which is this singing night that's been going in the Cobblestone <laughs> for about a decade yeah. or, or longer. And it was a place where the younger singers who were interested would meet the older singers. And right. you have this cross-generational exchange that was really fruitful, you know. And like a huge scene kind of exploded out of that, like led by Lancome, Ye Vagabonds, Lisa O'Neill, Landless, uh, Skipper's Alley, John Francis Flynn. Like these are world-class artists who are really successful around the world now. And they all came out of this little back room. That's a lot of, where a lot of them met each other. Yeah. So I remember going down to that and to be honest, I was well into the filmmaking at this stage and it had just reopened after COVID and I went down and I was just really, I'd always been meaning to go, mm. but it wasn't really my scene. Yeah. You know, I'm not like a ballad singer. I'm not someone who's into that. Yeah. So to, and it was interesting to hear you talk about worship earlier and religion and mass and all that kind of stuff, because that's a huge topic in the film and not so much the religious aspect, but I think what you're talking about, which is communion, yes. which is, and the definition of that is a group of people sharing an intimate thought or feeling. Yes. And that is what we all crave, I think, particularly coming out of COVID-19. So that idea of the singing circle and one person singing and everyone else is listening yeah. very quietly and respectfully. And it's very mindful. It's very relaxing. I think it, you know? to, to an extent, I remember what, talking to Damien Dempsey about his Christmas gigs and right. watching the crowd at that, much like you're describing now, Luke, is that for a lot of young people, this is what our parents used to go to mass for or went to mass to be part of something. In other 100%. words, this is kind of like 21st century mass for another generation who don't go there on Sundays. Well, look, in the prehistoric times, people sat around the campfire and stared at the flames and that was mass. And then it became mass and then it evolves into something else. Yeah. Like the need for human togetherness yeah. is absolutely fundamental to our species. And I, I, as a total <laughs> subplot, by the way, yeah. the, the obsession with podcasts that's going on at the moment, and right. I'm, I'm an obsessive, I love yeah, podcasts. Me too. But to see venues around the country and Amazing. the world full of people who want to go and watch what is essentially a radio show right on stage yeah so you're because if you listen to conan o'brien or luke mcmahon's whatever it might yeah. be whatever podcast it might be now you don't it's not enough just to hear them you want to go and see them doing talking and that's i think it comes back to that sense of community because you're with absolutely you're, you're with like-minded listeners and souls going yeah. yeah you're in the club you know i often refer to this place as the show of like being a little club of right. like-minded souls 100% and, and you know maybe you want to hang out together a little bit massively you know? no no it's so important to our emotional health and our yeah. intellectual health yeah. to go out and be around other people and that's kind of one of the reasons that this is a film for the cinema and not a tv series yes. is that I want people to come together and share the experience of watching it and hear, you know, feel that anticipation beforehand and react to it in the same yes, interesting way. That's ways. why it's you know, so important. I agree so with important. Yeah, yeah. I went to see the new Bill Nye film Living the other day and it was it was kind of afternoon, so it was a lot of pensioners. All right. One nicer than the other. Right. But it, <laughs> and and, and I, normally when I go to the cinema, there's no one there because I go quietly or to yeah. press screening or what have you. And it was quite nice because there were moments that were kind of laughter or, or whatever and people were laughing and I thought, oh, so this is, oh, sure, now I'm enjoying it a little bit more in company. 100%. You know what That's I'm saying? what it's all about. Like, yeah. Let's talk about the the, uh, the, the need to protect uh, things like these sing songs, the singing circle as you describe it um, and the Cobblestone Pub and that, that uh, amazing campaign that uh, features in the in the programme. Right. That, that lovely scene where the daughter of the owner is getting emotional right. uh, talking about the bar being but also she, really what she was talking about was look at all these people yeah look what it means yeah. to them uh, a yeah. pub 
It's but it's not a pub. It's a cultural centre. It's a it's, it's a, a community. It's a, it's yeah. A, yeah, it is. And you knock it down because you need to put up more whatever it is shops. Yeah. Things like, you just go no, hang on, hang on. Stop. Absolutely. Sometimes you have to say, wait a minute. Big time. And I think the people who got behind the cobblestone, I, and I kind of sometimes wish I wasn't in this job so I could get it stuck in. Right, sometimes. I know. I don't mean that. I love this job. <laughs> I just, I, there are times where you just go, I'd love to campaign. Like Have that. the freedom yeah, to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But to see, campaigning and protesting and marching is the same energy as going to the cinema or going to a football match. Or, Maybe, yeah. You know, it's that thing of coming together with other people and sharing the same energy and the same goals and the same feelings and yes. the same thoughts. So that kept coming back in the film, that mm. idea of mm. the group. But I suppose with the cobblestone, obviously we're in a terrible crisis around accommodation and Dublin is a wonderful, wonderful city to mm. live in if you have secure, affordable housing. Yes. But if you don't have secure, affordable housing, it's a deeply stressful, difficult you place to live. Well, yeah. yeah, but I think it's the big issue. I mean, like, employment is not a problem. There's a huge cultural life in the city. It's just an amazing place. Yes. But you can't afford to live in it. Luke McManus on his documentary North Circular from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the live line in the afternoon, Anya called Joe about a medical emergency she was involved in and how that triggered her past trauma. Well, we were going to a party, a birthday party over in London. So I went, I went to the local uh, beautician that I go to to get my nails done. Okay. And um, so during the time that she was doing my nails, we heard a loud bang. Um, I thought it was just maybe a door kind of banging or something. Okay. But the, the girl who was doing my nails jumped up and she ran out into another room and the other beautician who worked there had collapsed and she was on the floor. So um, the, the, the girl called me and she said, Anya, would you ever just get, you know, phone 999? And uh, mm-hmm. so I phoned 999 for the first time. I'd ever actually phoned them, but they were very nice. And the lady there said to me, she said, just keep me posted about the girl that, was, that had collapsed. So I um, I knew that that um, the other beautician and myself wouldn't be strong enough to lift the girl. You know, she was really a dead weight and to put her on her side, you know. So I ran out and this lovely man came in and he was able to push the girl on her side in the recovery position. Okay. And um, then we put a little blanket over her to keep her warm. And then the um, the uh, first responders came and they were really good and they kind of took charge of the situation. And then the ambulance crew came and um i was i was so relieved that that there was help there um and uh so i kind of relaxed but all of a sudden then i collapsed okay yeah. oh god so um oh. so they so th- they got one of the ambulance people who had come for the other girl now who had collapsed yeah. and she's doing fine now thank god but okay. anyway they they um they came out and i was gone and they uh so i suffer with um PTSD because okay. 10 years ago I was And do you down. think just just before Anya do you think yeah. so the the other woman is you, you, you do your your more than enough to yeah. try and help the other woman yeah. and the other woman the ambulance come and she's taken away No uh, it was before she was taken before, away Okay yeah But no. then you you collapsed Yes 
<laughs> and when you say collapse, do you mean you went unconscious or yes, you, yes. you had to have a chair and a glass of water? Or? No, no, no. I actually slid down the wall. Oh, I was standing at the wall. So anyone looking at this would have got us, who had seen the first incident yeah. a few minutes earlier that you've been so brilliant helping out in, would have got an awful shock when they saw the Good Samaritan go down. Well, they thought I was messing, do you know? Oh, God. <laughs> they were saying, God. But I, it's just, I suffer with PTSD. Okay. And that was one of the reasons that I kind of sent the, the email was because um, when the ambulance crew came, they immediately did the kind of prick on your finger to see, do you have diabetes, you know? But um, I... What the problem with me is that I was knocked down 10 years ago okay. in um, a church car park. A car just went out of control after mass and it was heading for my daughter. And oh uh, she was standing up against a car. So I jumped out in front of her and yeah. um, I saved her, but the car threw me up in the air and I came down on my head and I was unconscious for, for quite some time. And then it ran over my, my husband's uh, foot and then it lifted up a jeep that the newspaper man had. So it was very forceful. And was there anyone in the car on you? Yeah, there were two people. That, okay. There was the lady driving the car and her mother. And accidentally took off, so to speak. Well, I think, you see, she wasn't used to the car. It was, oh, okay. Uh, okay. I think she put her foot on the acceleration oh, instead of the brake. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. So the, the problem with trauma is that it's like a carpet. It lifts up. Um, it lifts up the other trauma. So the, when the girl fell on the ground uh-huh. and I heard the bang, that bang reminded me of when I was knocked down and I could hear the bang of my head on the ground. It, I got an awful, everybody said around to that I got an awful bang uh, on my head. And that lifted up the previous trauma, of which was the worst trauma. There's always the first, the worst, and the most recent. So the car accident lifted up the when I lost my little baby in 1985. Um, she was still born. It was neglect, but we didn't take it any further okay. um, because it wouldn't bring her back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that lifted up that trauma, and then that lifted up when you know when I was a child, my mother was in hospital for quite some time. So in trauma, there's always the first, the worst, and the most recent. And the thing is that often when trauma happens. You're so traumatised that you freeze. They call it the frozen present. And so you freeze the incident and you can't cope with it. Your body just reacts by freezing it, putting it into the deep, the deep freeze. So you kind of appear as if you're grand and you're dealing with everything. But something else happens and it triggers it. Mm-hmm. And it's like the rug is pulled from under you and you re-experience the trauma again. That's Anya. Then Catherine called about a fall her mother had recently. Well, I tell you, Joe, it was two weeks ago now my mother had okay. a fall. She yeah. fell in the house and um, she was nearly two hours, an hour and 50 minutes on the floor before an ambulance came. Yeah. Now she's 81 years of age and basically I think it's an absolute disgrace for my mother or anybody else to be left on the floor for an hour and 50 minutes. And where, on where, an where did this happen, Catherine? In the house. She fell in the no, house. No, but where about, whereabouts in, in, in Ireland, in Dublin? And, in, in Dublin and yeah. Pear Street, yeah. Oh. yeah. Not too far from Fire Brigade headquarters, but they've only, no. there's only two ambulances there, and every time I drive by, they're never there because they're out. They seem to be 24-7. Um, well, so was there was anyone saying, well, could you get your mother to the hospital your, herself, yourself? Mm. 
No, no, we were told when we rang the ambulance at two minutes past three to leave her and not touch her. She was in a desperate pain, so we knew something was broken. She actually broke her, um, she fractured her humerus bone. That's yeah, where she fractured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were told not to uh, move her because you do more damage. But she was an hour and 50 minutes on the floor. Four times we rang the ambulance in that period of time. And she was left. I, I don't understand, like, like what class is an emergency when you ring an ambulance? Yeah. And, you know, and, why would you leave a woman well, on the floor well, for that uh, long? Well, they don't do it deliberately, of course, but you heard, the, I think it was the union last week, saying that the, because of, uh, of COVID and illness among staff and, and whatever, that the, there were six uh, appliances. Now, I don't know whether the appliances normally uh, refers to fire engines, but in Dublin, the emergency service, uh, the ambulance service is run by... Dublin Fire Brigade, it's another, it's, it's two, okay, yeah. another two yeah. now. How is she now, Catherine? Well, she's not too good, Joe, because she, oh, cause she, she has a health oh, condition. God. Yeah, but I mean, she's on the floor, She, her legs were cramping, she was getting terrible cramps, she wanted to go to the bathroom, and after the fourth phone, phone call when I got the ambulance then, her breathing was changing, and she actually oh, says God. to me, I think I'm dying. But it was when I rang the fourth time, and I actually said them more to the ambulance man, the ambulance man then said to me, the fire brigade, when I rang, they actually said, yeah. OK, we have an ambulance at Trinity College, College Green, and there'll be an ambulance with it in two minutes. So okay. when her down. breathing started changing, yeah. there was an ambulance here quicker. OK. But I yeah. just don't understand what's an emergency for, for somebody to be lying on the floor for nearly two hours at 81 years of age. That's Catherine on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, five ingredient meals. Chef Brian McDermott had a few ideas. We think of our dinner and we say five ingredients. We go, that's not possible. But we do it for our breakfast. We do it for our lunch and sometimes supper. It's around five ingredients or less. So that substantial meal, can we achieve it? And what I like to say to people is this is not every day. There's times you want to enjoy cooking and you want to enjoy that sort of sensory that comes with it, the smell and taste. But when we're in a hurry or we're feeling lazy, like I'm going into lazy weekend. I don't mind. I'm going to have a lazy weekend and I'm making it very, very clear. So what are the options in terms of food if you're the provider? And I think when you look in your press, it normally involves about two of the dried ingredients. You might go to your freezer to pull something out. And then it's a combination of very little cooking, which means very little energy used, which means very little washing up, which takes you in that direction of we can do this and we can achieve it. But big ingredients that you would look towards are similar to what you would look for in a sandwich. The likes of the pestos, they're brilliant because you can think straight away. That's one catalyst that I'll say, OK, that'll work with a bit of fish or it'll work with a bit of chicken. Normally a bit of fresh produce. And then it's into really just a bit of seasoning, bringing it together. So we've put together really fuss-free five recipes with five ingredients. OK, you mentioned pesto there and that brings us to what we need to keep an eye on if we're regularly buying and eating pre-prepped sauces. Yeah, you know, there is, there's obviously a big market out there and we grab and we see everything from a euro up to maybe four euro for a tomato-based pasta sauces. So when I look at that and I think, OK, is that going to pull me out of a hole? What I want is cleanliness. What does that mean? Turn around to the back, turn around to the ingredients and just look at the list and if you see, you know, tomatoes, onions, seasoning, garlic, garlic, lemon juice, then you're into freshness. It's where you start to see the mad amount of E numbers and 
ingredients that you're not aware of, they're the ones to be cautious of. But mm -hmm. there is some really good quality convenience products that are out there. So Take the time in the supermarket. Yeah, a shorter list. Yeah, that's what Taking you're Taking the time for, in the really. supermarket will mean that you will save it at home because you have the taste. And a bit of planning as well, because we're using five ingredients, but we may just sneak in some of the stuff that you have in your press ah, yeah, already. You, I mean, I, I, I've got to assume that you've got, you know, your seasoning, your salt, your pepper, your oils and things like that, and maybe some fresh herbs. So planning is key. And, you know, listeners that are following us will know we've dumped out our freezer. We reorganised it. We talked about bolognese cooking. We talked about batch cooking. So there's times when you can say, you know, I might just pull out a bolognese that I've made versus a convenient one. And it's all about that continuation. It's all about that education. And you know what I'd say to people today, if you have time over the weekend, look at your store cupboard ingredient. See what's in there. There might be chickpeas. There might be tomatoes. There might be things in there that you don't even know that's in there. Pull them out and say to yourself, could that one ingredient with four more create a meal? Yes. And if so, the known unknown at the back of the press. Hundred percent, and trust it because if it's tinned and canned, you know there's a safety element to that. Okay, so you're keeping the recipes um, streamlined, and if you're doing that, how important is it to try and get the best ingredients that you can afford to buy? Yeah, absolutely, all about affordability at the moment. There's no doubt about that. And really, the best ingredients are if you want freshness within this. Like one of the recipes that I'm going to do is a salty, you know, or a sticky salty and chili chicken, and you think that's takeaway. I'd ring up and order that and I'd have it at the weekend. But you can create it at home. Simple things like taking a chicken goujon. And I remember covering this a few months ago where we talked about, you know, taking the small, fill it off the back of the breast and breadcrumbing it, putting it into the freezer, knowing they're there. Take those out, cut them up, a typical goujon, cut it into three, into a bowl and add something like your convenient sweet chilli sauce. That's excellent because it's Are got... Are we allowed to buy that? Oh yeah, you have okay. to. Oh absolutely. That That is one of my five. That is in there in my store cupboard and when you open it, pop it in the fridge and you know, it's it's nice one to return to. It's addictive. Why is it addictive? Because it's got all the taste buds, the sweet, sour, the bitter, the salt. It's made of the vinegars, the sugars, the seasonings in it. So we're going to return to that all the time. Chicken breast, we've often discussed, doesn't have much flavour. So pull in the likes of this as a nice sweet chilli into it, into a bowl and just toss it around and then lay it out flat on a tray into the oven and really in about eight minutes that's going to crisp up almost like a crispy chicken that dare I say you might order at a takeaway and then take it out and you can add your scallions or your sesame seed or even just some chilli on the top of it if you wish. It's up to you but I go for a little bit of fresh sea salt on it. So Toss you, that around and you have it. So you've just put the sweet chilli sauce on that? Yeah. That's, that's, this is this is not, you know, a mad amount of cooking or chef skills or anything like that. This is just looking at convenience, feeling lazy, getting something tasty that does that weekend supper lazy part of the meal, but is a meal. And even putting that inside a wrap, Claire, is absolutely beautiful. Mm. Hot or cold. So as a nice Friday night supper, that is perfect. Brian McDermott from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, back to the abuse stories at Spirit and Run Schools. Uh, health warning, we have to go back to the uh, Spiritans and the Holy Ghost uh, order because, as people might be aware, on Wednesday, uh, when the, it was the first media briefing given by the Holy Ghost order and it was a press conference organised by a PR company, obviously, they're the ones to do it, and, but also the, the uh, four victims came along who were supporting the Holy Spirit uh, orders campaign for or what they what they call the restorative justice uh, program. Now I asked a number of questions at that press conference, and I asked why uh, the Spiritans had refused to. Uh, they said they have a, a list of seventy-seven uh, abusers, 
um, up to last Thursday when we were getting multiple allegations about different individuals. And remember, on day one, the dock on one, one name was in the public domain. By Liveline that Friday, I think there was nine names in the public domain. And in each occasion, the Spiritans were coming back and saying, yes, that person, unfortunately, is one of the 77. But however, things changed either on Friday or over the weekend, before the press conference anyway. And the Spiritans said quite clearly, we gave them five more names last Friday. I handed them again to the uh, provincial last Wednesday. And um, they told us categorically they will, be not, they will not be confirming any names, uh, any other names, even of abusers who are deceased. Now, we are naming another one today, and his name is Father Jimmy Duggan. He was in uh, Rockwell uh, Catering College, which is run by... uh, It's in Rockwell College, which is run by um, the Holy Spirit. And uh, Patrick Bennett is in... uh, He's across the Atlantic. And Are you in um, America or Canada, Patrick? I don't know. Um, How are you, Patrick? I'm fine, Joe. I'm in Duncannon. Oh, you're in Duncannon? Oh, good. I'll be there later on myself. Okay, okay. I thought you were... I'm, I'm confused because we've just got a confirmation from the Gardaí in the last four or five minutes. As you know, we've been trying, yeah. because the Spiritans are not cooperating anymore, we have to, a very small team, have to do, dig deep and long and hard and late into the night to try and stand up some of these names. But uh, Father Father Duggan, the Gardaí have told us, was... Uh, they they had multiple uh, allegations against him, and the one of the law officers involved in the case um, contacted us as well, and he verified. Uh, tell us about this man, Jimmy Duggan, Father Jimmy Duggan, a Holy Ghost uh, priest in Rockwell, Patrick. Um, the question is where do I begin, Joe? Yeah. Uh, uh, on the outside, a very amiable man. Yeah. Um. On the inside, something completely different. Um, at the time, I was in Rockwell Hotel School, Rockwell Catering College from 1984 to 1986. Okay. Uh, we were boarders there for two weeks at a time. Okay. Got home every second weekend. Uh, so it was approximately 30, 40 of us to a dorm. Um, on my second night there, um, I heard him doing patrol when the lights went out. I uh, heard the door closing behind him. And after that, the door opened again, and he would obviously come back into the room, but was trying to pretend that he hadn't. Okay. Uh, came directly to my bed. Uh, I had a duvet at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure whether he was on his knees or on one knee beside my bed, but his hand was... Okay. Doing things yeah. he should not have been doing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, he was doing something himself. To himself, which... okay. Um, did this happen again, Patrick? This happened again and again and again and again and again. And uh, it was kind of a case of lying in the dorm, waiting for him to come in and hoping that he wouldn't pick you. Do you think he... he Sorry, do you think he... He always picks somebody. Did you... uh, Were you able to report it? No. Uh, That was just... 
the least thing on my mind at that stage. Do you, uh, do you believe Duggan was abusing other children, other young people? I, I believe I saw it. You saw it? Yeah. Uh, as I say, when when he'd come into the dorm, you'd hope he wouldn't pick you, he'd pick somebody else. As, as kind of mean as that may sound. Patrick. Then Pat called Joe. He went to Rockwell from 1983 to 85. Hi, Joe, yeah. yeah I uh, was on with you there on Monday, but... OK, you couldn't, um, you couldn't name him. I wasn't allowed to mention yeah, there. Well, you are now, you are now. It's, been a, it's yeah. been a long battle and we've we've uh, a whole another list of names that we're going to be working on and uh, the Spiritans won't, won't uh, cooperate with us, but we will do, unless we want to talk about this new thing they're talking about. Uh, which they call uh, restorative justice. That's all. That's their. That's what they're interested in now. And it was mentioned in the doll. Yes, as he was on RT News that they're now saying they're being overwhelmed by the restorative justice, as they call it, campaign they're launching. So it's obviously brilliant from their point of view, and hopefully for for survivors if that's what's happening. Um, but we are we are naming Duggan now. Um, you were in Rockwell College. What age were you, Pat, when you came across Duggan? Uh, 17, as far as I know, Joe, yeah. Okay, and uh, you see, there's there's another MO here that they they watched for, we had one, was it one story last week of the 26 we had, where he, um, one of the abusers realised one of the boys was vulnerable. He, oh yeah, the guardie visited the college and they asked for this boy, but as it happened, it was just a routine inquiry and had nothing to do with the boy. But the, the one of the abusers living in uh, Black Rock spotted that the guardie called in the boy and then used that as blackmail against him as he went about abusing him. What happened in your case, Pat? So it was me who was actually telling you that story, George. That was okay. actually me you were talking oh, about. Oh, good stuff. Well, then now, now, now my mind is, is frazzled at this stage. So tell, tell us what happened then. Well, basically, I said the guard came to question me about uh, an incident, and okay. Father Jim Duggan kind of copped onto it and um, called me into the office and stuff there at the time. And um, he said that he would keep me in the school without getting me thrown out, you know. And then, like Patrick and Frank were saying there, you're kind of you kind of have a bit of a target on you there. Like he's very good at yeah. picking people that are vulnerable, younger. Uh, some people are maybe not in the crowd, or he he, he pinpoints some reason, and then he goes for you, you know. And um, I said um, what Patrick and Frank were saying there was absolutely a hundred percent true, especially when you were in the dorms at night time, and he'd come back in, and you could hear him crawling, and I still can hear his actually breath because he used to breathe very heavy when he was going around from bed to bed, and everybody knew he was there, and you know it's. Like, it's hard to imagine that, like, not one, that every single student and every member of staff knew actually what was going on. And a kind of a slightly different slant on... Oh, no, fair, without, uh, without, without, in fairness now, without naming any names, please don't. Oh, no. How, no. Do, you, how do you know others knew it was going Well, obviously, uh, with, with Patrick's call, Patrick Bennett from Duncanon, with Frank Murphy in the United States and with yourself uh, in, in Ireland, the... The three of you knew what was going on because you were targeted by him to a greater or lesser extent. But how do you know others knew, Pat? It was kind of everybody talked about it. Okay. You know, so and how do you, how do you know, again, without naming anybody or naming any position, how do you know other staff in the in the complex knew about him? 
because everyone used to talk about it openly. Like, you used to call him Dougie and, you know, everyone used to talk about, I hope he doesn't come around tonight or, you know, oh, mm. someone's called into the office, like people say, oh, it's your turn now or whatever, you know. Then Joe played a voice note from a past pupil. Dear Joe, I would like you to know of a grooming story that happened in St. Michael's College. I was in fifth year, 1979 to the best of my memory, and we had a religious retreat which lasted about three days. A priest from Blackrock College hosted the retreat in a newly built classroom in the schoolyard. Unfortunately, I cannot recall his name, but I understand he was well known for illicit behaviour. On one of the mornings, this priest gave us a lecture on masturbation and how wrong it was, and that if we did it, we would get acne on our face as a result. Being kids, all the lads in the class turned to face one fellow who was unfortunate enough to be covered in acne. This lad will have nothing to do with the school or its pupils since leaving school, probably as a result of that episode. Later in that afternoon, the same priest had one-on-ones with us for about ten minutes for confession where he asked me if I fondled myself, had thoughts about sex with girls or sex with boys or other people. I was lucky that I had an older brother who had me aware of these type of people, so I got myself out of there. That was a lucky escape for me. I had another lucky escape where I was one-on-one with Father Allo Flood on two days in a row, where he rang my parents after being kicked out of class for merely talking, and then the next day to apologise to me for overreacting. My mum, God rest her, ripped into him the next day for that. Maybe she knew something of him that we are all finding out now. She checked with me after the second day to see if I was alright. I'm sorry for all the boys in the Holy Ghost schools who were assaulted by these people and who continue to suffer the consequences. A voice note there from the live line and if this story has affected you, you can go to rte.ie slash helplines for information and support groups and someone to listen. And on today with Claire Byrne, the future at Twitter. Hundreds of Twitter employees are thought to be leaving the social media company following this ultimatum from the new owner, Elon Musk. He said staff should sign up for long hours at high intensity or leave. The company's also told employees that their office buildings will be temporarily closed until Monday, effective immediately. That includes the Dublin office. Well, it comes as the hashtag RIP Twitter trends online, with users speculating that the end of the social media giant is near. Well, Kira O'Brien is the technology journalist Journalist with the Irish Times, and she joins me on the line. Kira, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Let's start with the news that the Twitter staff are handing in their notice following the ultimatum from Elon Musk. What exactly did he say in that message to them? He sent an email that basically said it was titled A Fork in the Road. And what he said was going forward to break, to build a breakthrough Twitter 2.0 and succeed in an increasingly competitive world, we will need to be extremely hardcore. Now for him, and he was very clear, this means long hours, high intensity and said only exceptional performance would constitute a passing grade. Now, if you received an email like that, there's a there's a, a high chance you'd probably already have your backup. But what he also said was Twitter was going to be more engineering driven and um, that while design and product management would still be important, uh, it basically the, the majority of the team would be involved in writing great code. Um, he also said that Twitter was a software and service company at heart. So he thought that this made sense. Now, I think there's probably some people who would dispute that because a lot of the good stuff about Twitter is the people as well. But he essentially gave people an ultimatum. He said, you know, if you want to be part of this new Twitter, having laid it out as, as barely as he did, you know, you had to, you had to 
click yes on a link that was in that email and sign up by, it was 5 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, which is 10 p.m., I think, um, our time. And anybody who hadn't done so by that time would that would basically be taken as they were they weren't going to go forward with the company and they'd get three months of severance pay and they were gone so and they were gone. Have we any yes. indication as to what percentage of staff clicked yes and the, and who didn't reply? Not officially yet, because part of the uh, exodus of Twitter that's happened over the last couple of weeks has been the comms team. So there's no. I mean, we have we have asked questions. There's been no responses to it. Um, in general, though, it seems like there have been a lot of people, even in the problem that we see with this is not that, you know, these are not people who were there for six months. They are people who had been at Twitter for eight years, 10 years, 12 years. If you're following the, the, the hashtag on Twitter, um, love where you worked over the last couple of weeks, you'll see all the people who were, first of all, let go by Twitter um, in that initial kind of uh, 50% cut. But now over the last few hours, there's been a lot of people saying, you know, it's been a tough decision to make, but I've decided, you know, my time at Twitter has come to an end. And these are the people who have been with Twitter for a long time, who would form a key part even if the, uh, the the new owner doesn't see it, would form a key part of its success. And the problem with putting a gun to people's head is that it doesn't always go the way you'd want. And I'd be interested to see, you know, what percentage of people who are left actually have the experience that he wants to take Twitter forward into this new Twitter 2.0 era, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. And he said last night he's not worried about the people who are quitting. So he thinks the well, right people in his mind are going to go. Well, look... Elon Musk has to say that, you know, he's not worried. If he said he's worried in public, you know, he obviously has has a a problem on his hands. It's admitting that he has a problem. But you're also talking about the person who basically said 50% of people are going and then they had to ask people back because the way that they did, the way that they decided on those cuts was to the the quote that we got was carnage and uh, random and indiscriminate. So it's not that this everything has been perfectly well thought out up until this point. And the problem when you do something like this, when you create this kind of chaos in a company, the people who can get jobs elsewhere, the good people who you would want to keep will easily find another job somewhere else. Or they'll just decide, you know, we've had enough, I can go somewhere else, I don't need this in my life. And this is essentially, I think, what's happened. You know, he's, he's issued this ultimatum. He probably doesn't care. You know, he doesn't... I mean, we've seen this over the last couple of weeks. He's not really too concerned about, you know, kind of the, the intricacies of employment law in different areas and he's obviously not concerned about you know kind of the, the, the the moderation on Twitter because there has been an increase in you know probably what some people would find objectionable content um obviously other people would disagree tech journalist Kira O'Brien from today with Claire Byrne and that's it for playback daily so mind yourself till next time <laughs>